0: Welcome to Canada's most
1: irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, how Justin Trudeau's war on guns is also a war on facts. Also, he says diversity is our strength. Does that extend to education diversity? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Canada's most irreverent talk show. Great to have you tuned into the program here as we enter a new era in Canada in which facts don't matter, laws don't matter, the nature of good and bad don't matter. The war on guns is existing from the Liberals irrespective of all of these things. And you know what? We've talked about this in the past, and I get a lot of pushback from people who aren't gun owners, who are from cities or whatever. Maybe they're just from backgrounds that have never uh, put them in the same room as a firearm. But people that think, well, this doesn't affect me. I'm not a gun owner. You know what? There are 2 million Canadians who are gun owners. But even if you are not... The way the liberals are taking aim at gun ownership and gun owners matters to everyone. And the reason why is because if the liberals and the government more broadly has no respect for property, no respect for facts or evidence or constitutional liberties or all of these things, then it's only a matter of time before they go after something that you do own or something that does affect you. The bill that the Liberals tabled today, Bill C-21, an act to amend certain acts and to make certain consequential amendments with regard to firearms. This is the long-awaited bill on firearms reforms, or let's be real, confiscation measures, that the Liberals promised after they banned unilaterally and summarily 1,500 different variants of firearms last year. Now, the reason they did that without actually having the long-standing, longer-term bill that they're tabling now is because they did it on the back of a nap Because they wanted to use the political capital they thought they seized from the horrific Nova Scotia shooting, the one that started in, in Portapique and devastated that community, claimed so many lives, and by the way, did it without the use of any legally owned firearms. But the Liberals saw that moment. They thought they had enough public support and buy-in because of that horrific attack that they could ram this through. And they're still trying to ride that wave, irrespective of facts, irrespective of all of the things that you'd think would matter and actually should matter if you're talking about taking Canadians' property and essentially barring them from doing something that is causing no issue whatsoever to public safety. Because gun crime does not come from legal guns. Gun crime does not come from legal gun owners, from law abiding citizens who happen to like sports shooting or hunting or going to the range or even just collecting. They are not the problem. But let's look at all of the ways that this bill is going to go after them the government is going to introduce a new red flag law that would basically allow anyone to go to the court and say, I think you should take away Joe's firearm. I think he's a, a little bit iffy. I, I don't like the way that he and his wife are uh, behaving. I don't like whatever the case may be. You could actually use this to petition the court to have their guns immediately confiscated and have their license suspended. Now to be clear, I actually don't think a red flag law is necessarily the worst thing in the world, depending on how it's done. The problem is that that we already have a mechanism in the law that allows police to take away guns from someone who is going to cause harm to others. So what right is this giving authorities on top of that? That still stands to be seen. Also, the surrender of firearms pending legal challenge of license revocation. So now you no longer have the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. This would require an individual to surrender their guns during a legal challenge of their license or certificate revocation fighting smuggling and trafficking. Actually good to hear the liberals talking about this because they've been pretending that the issues are coming entirely from law-abiding gun owners and that there is no border issue when it comes to firearms. This is, I'd say, the most dangerous provision, however. Help municipalities create safer communities. Support municipalities that wish to restrict handguns. So what this would do is actually allow the municipality of whichever, Vancouver, Toronto, Calgary, London, Windsor, doesn't matter, would allow a municipality to ban you from possessing or transporting a handgun, even if you are legally authorized to own that handgun. You've gone through the licensing regime, you have your license, you've registered the firearm, it's yours, you've proven that you're not a menace to society, a municipality could then ban you from having that in your home and also ban you from storing it somewhere else in the municipality. So one of the ideas that's been put forward is central storage. So if you want to own a handgun, well, you can't keep it at home. You can only store it at your range. Now, there's a lot of risk with that, but this goes even beyond that because a municipality could say the range can't store it, the gun store can't store it, and you can't store it, and you can't store it with someone else because then they would need uh, to have registration of it. So what the government is effectively doing is allowing city bylaws To make your legally owned handgun illegal. And before you go down the road of, well, who needs a handgun? It's not about need. There are lots of reasons people have them target shooting, collecting, people that have had a history of family members in law enforcement, so they have an affinity for these sorts of things. It doesn't matter. If you're not causing any risk to anyone, you're not shooting people, you do not have to justify, or let me clarify, in a sensible society, you should not have to justify why you need to have that. Legally, the government has said, you're safe, you're secure, here are the rules you have to follow to store it. But now a municipal government can go on top of that and take aim at your property and at your rights. And what do you have to do? Move? Well, what happens if all of the municipalities decide to do this? This is only going to further rural-urban divides that are already very significant and are already dividing Canadians. But this is going to be monumental because, you know, that places like Toronto and Vancouver are not going to hesitate to do this. Toronto has actually been begging the government to give them the power to ban handguns for quite some time. I'm not sure how many handgun owners there are in Vancouver. You probably would have moved to another city if you were the type of person that wanted handguns. But nevertheless, cities like uh, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, which cover large swaths of the population, are going to avail themselves of this right from the government which kind of goes around provincial governments who are supposed to have the ultimate oversight, A, of a lot of the firearms restrictions, and B, of the way municipalities structure. But this is the whole thing that the government is doing now. You could actually be criminalized for violating a municipal bylaw if your municipality decides it wants to make it so that you can't have or use or transport a handgun. So this is what the government is doing here. Death by a thousand cuts. They're going after the ones that they banned last year, the AR-15s, the uh, Mini-14, other variations like that. They didn't go after handguns, but they're basically rolling out the red carpet for municipalities that do. So it will become illegal without the government actually having to have the gonads to criminalize the possession of these handguns. And ultimately, everyone's just going to have to start, you know, living in Okotoks or whatever, because no cities are going to be allowing these things. And this is another great one, by the way. The government will ensure mid-velocity replica firearms are prohibited. Now, I'm going to give you the summary of this. If you have a toy gun that looks like a government-banned gun, that's going to be illegal to buy or sell so if you have it you're fine but if you've got a toy gun even an unregulated airsoft rifle that happens to look like an ar-15 or even i mean theoretically a paintball gun would qualify well tough luck that's going to be illegal so you're going to be able to keep your so-called replica but you can't transfer it you can't uh, import it export it sell buy anything like that And it's only good if your air gun doesn't look like a conventional regulated firearm. So, oh, goody. So you can still have like the giant bright green Nerf gun or whatever, but you can't have an airsoft gun that looks cool enough to actually want to own it. So toy guns are now part of this so-called scourge on society. Uh, The irony is this was supposed to be the buyback announcement. We were supposed to be hearing about the government's buyback plan, but they didn't actually have a buyback plan here they've just said they're going to come up with one in the future the one thing we do know is that it's not going to be mandatory So it will actually be voluntary. So whoop de doo you have a choice. You can sell your AR-15 back to the government, or you can hold on to it. But if you hold on to it, you cannot do anything with it ever again until the end of time. You can't buy one, you can't sell one, you can't import one, you can't shoot one, you can't take it to the range, you can't even will it to someone after you've died. You are just sitting on basically a piece of metal. This is what the government is trying to do. So this is going to make it so that when people do sell them back to the government, which incidentally, how do you sell something back that the government never had in the first place? It's confiscation with a little bit of a financial aspect. It is not a buyback. There is no transactional value here. This is a gun grab. So what the government is doing, again, pretending that it is giving you a choice, pretending that it's giving you the opportunity here to make a decision for yourself when in actuality, they're just trying to make it so convoluted and so difficult that most people will just go along with it because what the heck else are you going to do? And again, before you say, well, who needs an AR-15? This is not about need. And by the way, as much as the AR-15 tends to get most of the brunt of the discussion here, there were a lot of the 1,500 guns and gun variants that the liberals banned that were used for hunting. So when they say, well, these were just guns that were used to kill people, for starters, even sport shooters are not using them to kill people. But there were guns that were owned by indigenous people, people in rural areas, people in the north that were actually being used for hunting, were being used for sustenance. And the government has now decided that these things are all banned. So it's not just about going after AR-15s because, oh, well, who needs one of those? There were guns that were actually essential to people's daily lives that were caught up in this ban, and the liberals have never acknowledged that. The Liberals have never acknowledged that. They've never owned up to it. They've never walked back from that. They've actually continued to double and triple down on that. Even today, with the line that we keep hearing over and over again, including most recently from Bill Blair, that the guns the Liberals are going after are only for people who want to kill people.
0: Earlier this morning, Mr. Lametti and I had the honor to present to the House Bill C-21, a bill that went passed, will significantly strengthen gun control in Canada. And with this bill, we are keeping our promise to Canadians to reduce gun violence by strengthening our laws, prohibiting firearms which were designed only to kill, by placing significant and effective new restrictions on guns that are used by criminals, and by creating a regime to remove firearms from dangerous situations made deadly by the presence of a firearm. On May 1st of last year, our government took the extraordinary and necessary action. To prohibit over 1,500 tactical assault style rifles. These were weapons not designed for hunting or sport shooting activities, but rather for their efficiency as weapons designed to kill. They're combat weapons designed to be used in tactical situations.
1: They're just trying to stir up this fear. This misplaced fear that doesn't align with the realities. We don't have a massive gun crime problem compared to other jurisdictions. And when we do have gun crime, it's coming from gangs in cities, not from people or institutions or organizations that will at all be affected by this confiscation and disarmament. So this is not going to be a package of reforms that will do anything. And one reporter had actually indicated this. He said, you know, yeah, there have been people that have been gunned down by legal firearms and illegal firearms. Uh, He was talking about the legal with a, a shooting at Dawson College. How is this criminalization going to functionally stop someone from doing that? Same as the Portapique, Nova Scotia massacre, the rampage there. How would anything prevent someone who already was acquiring guns outside of the law from undertaking such acts of violence? It simply wouldn't. And Bill Blair, during today's announcement, had even acknowledged that in a way. He said, well, you know, the problem with the buyback plan is that we don't know uh, where all these guns are and who has them. uh, So we're going to force people who don't want to sell them back to register them. Oh, Well, well, great. So the people that don't register them were criminals who don't care about the law. So the only people penalized, the only people even affected, are those who show a willingness and conscientiousness to engage with the law in the prescribed manner. As in, law-abiding gun owners aren't the problem, so anyone who says they are is being willfully disingenuous or actually just has no idea what they are doing. There was one particular point, though, that really jumped out at me that I I had to share, because again, we we can talk about this person disliking guns, this person liking them. I get not everyone is going to like them. I get that. Not everyone's going to understand them. I understand that too. But that is different than willingly and willfully making stuff up, which Justin Trudeau did when he made this comment about self-defense, about personal protection.
0: In Canada, uh, people can use guns for hunting uh, and for sport shooting, not for personal protection. And uh, there is no need for military-style assault weapons
1: anywhere in this country. So that is factually untrue you actually can in this country use anything for self defense for personal protection as long as it is proportionate to the level of risk that you were facing now in some way he he is close to something that's correct you cannot own a gun for the purpose of personal protection. If you are doing your uh, interview with a firearms officer because you are trying to get a license and they say, why do you want it? If you say for home defense, you're not gonna get your license. So that's true that you cannot own it for that primary purpose, but you are allowed to use your firearm to defend yourself. Now that doesn't mean police won't try to charge you and that you won't have a massive, massive fight ahead when you try to have those charges dropped, as has happened in a number of cases in Canada. But you legally can use a firearm for self-defense based on all of the case law we see of people who have had those charges dropped. So Justin Trudeau is actually saying something that is fundamentally untrue here. When he misrepresents the law in Canada and says that a gun serves no purpose for personal protection. So this is very important because facts still matter. Maybe not in the course of making the legislation that we saw today, but they should matter and do matter if we want to have an honest discussion about firearms. And I'm all for that. I'm all for an honest discussion because I know that if you have an honest one, it's going to lead to facts that do not justify the gun grab that the government is imposing right now. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Among the most famous words in Canadian politics by now, diversity is our strength. Well, is that true in the education system across the country in the various provinces? A new report from ARPA Canada, the Association for Reform Political Action, says it is and actually lays out some really important recommendations on how we can get more diversity in education, which ultimately is more choice for parents and, by extension, a better array of options for for students, the report just came out. It's called Educational Diversity. Right to the point about what it's about. There, joining me from Arpa Canada is lawyer Andre Schutten. Andre, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today.
2: Well, it's so good to be on the show. Thanks very much for having me.
1: Now, like I, I sort of alluded to earlier, we hear lots of talk about diversity. What is it in this context?
2: Yeah, diversity is is very important. Uh, I think in this in this country, we recognize it. Uh, all kinds of different people. Uh, come to the table with different experiences and uh, different ideas. And that's uh, usually going to be a strength for us. Uh, the problem when it comes to education is that when it comes to diversity, we're not thinking uh, broad enough. We're not thinking about a diversity of uh, cultures or a diversity of institutions uh, or uh, of, of groups. And that's where we, I think we need to see more diversity. Right now, uh, while there might be, a diversity of, of people within one big um, uh, education system, a single system. Uh, there's not a diversity in approaches to education in different institutions providing education for our kids and, and not a diversity in recognizing that different, uh, there's different philosophical and pedagogical philosophies around uh, education. So, so we're just advocating for a lot more of that and the outcome will be best for all kids.
1: We have as available options right now: homeschooling, private schools. Even so, the vast majority of students enrolled, and the report mentions this, are in the public system and, and under the banner of the public system: uh, Catholic schools, charter schools, if you're in Alberta, or the the general public public school board. And I think it's somewhere in the range of around 92 percent, or just shy of that, that are choosing to be in a publicly funded school. So they have the options. What's not diverse about the system if parents parents can choose to go into them and are just in large numbers choosing to go into the public stream?
2: Yeah, I think I think that that number is actually pretty staggering when when we see that 92 of, percent of Canadian kids are being educated by the state, by the civil government, um, we, we would start uh, as our foundation, our first step is to say, well, who's actually first responsible, who's primarily responsible for the education of our children? And I say that responsibility lies on parents. But when uh, certain um, you know options are just off the table because of, uh, let's say, finances or because uh, they're not being promoted enough or made available enough. Um, you know that becomes a problem. Uh, I think a lot of parents aren't even aware that that independent education, education provided not by the state but by other actors, that, that that's a that it's a good option, that it's an option that should be embraced. And and certainly in some provinces, like in Ontario, there's certainly no financial um, uh, you know um, financial support for that kind of education. Uh, and so that that's gonna that's gonna speak volumes. Um, some some of the um, yeah some of the messaging around public education is is basically that that a good citizen ought to send their child to a state run school and and I think that that kind of messaging needs to change as well
1: when I was raised and I, I was raised in Ontario and i 've lived here uh, all of my life, the private school was just for the really rich kids and the really wealthy kids and and that was the image in my mind that the private school had. And I've learned later on in life that that isn't in fact the case, that there are a lot of private religious schools I'd say are the most notable examples where people who have very just average middle-class family incomes uh, find a way to scrape and scrounge and, and put their kids in these private schools. And you're right, they have to do it really well paying for two educations, their taxes are still mm-hmm. going towards the, the public school system, and then they're paying a tuition in the private school system. One mm-hmm. of the recommendations in this report, which I, I think is very important, is allow education funding according to a per capita formula for all public school, independent school, and homeschooled students. So am I understanding that correctly, that if you're a parent and you want to go to a, a private school, you could take that tax money that you're paying towards the public school and reallocate it?
2: Yeah, exactly. That that would be one way of doing it. Now, there's di- there's different ways of doing it, but that, that's the basic uh, thrust of it. Um, if what are we interested in supporting as provincial governments in this country? Is it to support a system? Is it to support one big system, or is it to support students? And if it's to support students and to uh, empower parents to make good decisions for their own children. Then, then let the money follow the child. Don't let the money just go to a system and fund the system. Um, and and so that that kind of a model will uh, it's going to have a couple of good effects. One is going to uh, increase um, I think efficiencies because those schools, various schools, will will want to be able to uh, have your child come to their school so that they can. They can, um, you know, educate them and, and, and develop their curriculum and and, and so on. Um, so there's going to be better efficiency. But but importantly, from our perspective, it's going to increase responsibility, the ownership of the responsibility and the decisions of parents. Parents are going to be not saying, well, civil government, you take care of making sure my kid gets a good education. Rather, it's each parent is going to say, now I'm I'm invested. I want to investigate how things are going at that school, because if it's not going well at this school. I'm going to pull my kid out and put them in that other school where they're learning better, they're reading better, they're, they're doing better on their math scores, they're, they're understanding, um, you know, concepts like biology and chemistry better. Uh, there's no more bullying over here compared to there. And, and, and that they can make those kinds of decisions and freely do so without too much uh, concern.
1: How solid is the evidence on academic performance that you, you just mentioned in, in comparison between these two public or private options? And I'm including homeschooling in private.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so across the board, independent schooling uh, produces a better uh, result for students. Their marks are going to be higher than uh, than students coming out of the public system, and and we see that in other jurisdictions, and we see that in Canada itself. In fact, and, and this is uh, this is actually really important, is that. Uh, independent schooling increases the performance particularly for uh, marginalized uh, students and economically disadvantaged students. So so the people that we should be most concerned about, students from uh, racialized communities, for example, or students that that are very poor, come from poor parts of of cities and and parts of the country, they're going to do better when we have independent schools uh, in the area. In fact, there's even studies that show that where there's an independent school close by a public school, that the public school students will do, will do better. It'll actually increase even their performance. Uh, so you see that more in, in, in uh, jurisdictions like British Columbia, for example, that does support independent schools uh, a whole lot more than Ontario does. Uh, although these uh, independent schools don't quite get uh, you know, equal funding compared to the public system.
1: I have to go back to that 91.8% number to get the precise figure of people that are in the public stream when they have, theoretically, the choice to go elsewhere, notwithstanding the cost issues we've raised. But I do have to ask, is that, in your view, just because of a lack of option or feeling like they have a lack of option, or is that... Expressing a preference because if that many people, or even a a large subset of that, are are just choosing that system, is this really just a, a small minority of, of parents that you're trying to advocate for a solution for in this report?
2: Mm. Yeah, again, a, a fair question, and I think I think that there there certainly are um, parents that that do just prefer the the local school up the street, you know, a, a big a large school that's in their uh, neighborhood. Um, and And it can also be considerations like you know the local school the local publicly funded school, right We'll have a lot more uh, options and a lot of independent schools do like you know larger gyms, maybe swimming pools, huge um, athletic um, uh, facilities and, and those sorts of things. Uh, but again that that would come back down to that question of uh, of, of funding and, and having. You know the extra financial resources to to develop those programs. If if more resources like that were made available, I think uh, when 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 parents had a fuller range of options, there they would start making better use of it. Um, but but it's certainly not only about the money. I think that there is um, you know there's been a, a culture that has developed over the last you know thirty forty uh, years that that's very dependent on the civil government when it comes to uh, education and. and and it's going to lead to worrying um, developments down the road. I mean, this is more at the philosophical level, Andrew, but, but I think that where, where we depend on the civil government to uh, not only fund, not only regulate, but even to provide, uh, you know, the, the, the moral and pedagogical raising of our children, that, that's a, that's a problem because it it results in in among other things it results in a lack of responsibility on the part of parents towards their own children, uh, a lack of drive and determination um, to make make those kinds of decisions for your own kids, and and I think that that could be uh, that could be a problem. Then the other thing I would note is that that number is shifting slightly. Uh, that ninety one point eight percent of people in uh, the public school system is uh, slowly but surely decreasing. Because I think more and more people are being uh, a little upset with how uh, the quality of education in, in public schools and what's going on in, in a lot of these mega schools in particular. And actually, this last year with the whole COVID um, pandemic and 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 what's happened with uh, a lot of the schools, I think that's actually provided us an opportunity to really evaluate, is this the best way to do uh, education for kids? Is it to, to cram all kinds of kids through a um, you know, through a, a big three thousand student school, and, and run them through um, uh, that way, or or is there better ways to do schooling? Uh, still, maybe with an institutional school, but one that's uh, much smaller, and it's it's culturally uh, or religiously connected with the with the families that support it.
1: Going way back to 2007, I remember when in Ontario, the topic of faith-based schools uh, and funding faith-based schools publicly became a very toxic political issue. Then PC leader, John Tory, who had a great many other flaws, this wasn't one of them though, had had raised this idea and there was a a massive backlash. And I realize a lot's changed in the last 14 years, but a lot of people, I I think, and I say this as a Christian, a lot of people get very, uh, I, I think, instinctively uncomfortable with the idea of funding faith-based schools irrespective of the Catholic school funding which people seem Mm -hmm. to find is okay when other denominations aren't Uh, but the the curriculum itself is your view that there would be a a core standardized curriculum and then everyone would be able to build on top of that or do you think that honestly we need to strip it back down and and let individual schools or, or school boards develop a curriculum in accordance with some sort of baseline
2: standard? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think uh, those things are definitely things that would need to be explored and so on. But uh, at base, I think the the civil government has an interest in well-educated citizens. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if an independent school, uh, let's use a faith-based school, let's say there's a faith-based school that that exists and says, oh, we're educating kids, but by the time these kids hit grade three, they still can't read. By the time they hit grade eight, they can't do basic division uh, or multiplication. Well, there's a major problem there. And I think that um, that school 's not doing what it 's supposed to be doing, and I think the civil government has a interest an interest in in ensuring some basic standards when it comes to reading, writing arithmetic um, you know history science uh, civics and and so on but 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 I think it has to be relatively limited because you know how far do we want to go? We want to have still a diversity of options when it comes to. Pedagogical styles like uh, classical education versus what we see today, which is standard in, in public education or Montessori schools or uh, there's there's all kinds of different approaches to to education. Let's let that diversity happen because there's a diversity of kids. Um, I look at my own family uh, to make it a bit personal. I have a son who's right now thriving in a classical uh, school, which which really focuses on the liberal arts. Um, and I have a daughter who's not yet in school, but I don't think she's actually going to do all that well in that kind of a school. There might be another school where she'll do much better in, where she'll thrive in, where, where she has gifts and talents that, that will be better expressed in a different kind of school with a different pedagogical model. So I think we need to be able to accommodate that. But uh, frankly, uh, sending my kids to two different independent schools will, will break the bank. So we've got to figure out how to do that. Um, the limits that the civil government has when it comes to the diversity of educational options makes it very, very difficult for us to choose what's best for our kids. Um, and, and, and that's, yeah, that's a problem in a diverse country like Canada.
1: And it sounds as though being in Ontario, like me, you, you have the worst, uh, available option available to you when it comes to that.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and again, like, like our, our, um, uh, when you look at the law and so I'm I'm a lawyer and I, I often will look at this kind of thing through, through the lens of the law. I mean, there's, a, there's enough things in our uh, charter, for example, that would encourage a diversity of institutions when it comes to education. I mean, take, take section uh, 20, 20, uh, 23 of the, of the charter, which talks about a, a multicultural society and, and how all of our rights and freedoms have to be, uh, you know, flow through that kind of a lens. Well, well, a great, um, a great way to enhance our multicultural society is by enhancing a diverse spectrum of educational choices. That's Section 27 of the Charter, sorry, not Section 23. Um, and actually, when you look at international law, you see even stronger language for for independent education. There's some some really neat uh, things that have been passed both at the European Parliament and, and at the UN, which speak about how uh, we have to respect a child's uh, parents' uh, religious and cultural identity when it comes to issues like education. And, and I think that we can learn from the international community on this. So.
1: The report Educational Diversity published by the Association for Reformed Political Action, ARPA Canada. Uh, joining me from ARPA Canada is André Schutten, General Legal Counsel and Director of Law and Public Policy. André, thanks so much for coming on. Really fascinating topic.
2: All right. Thank you so much for having me.
1: That does it for us for today. We'll be back in just a few days with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.